Hi, welcome to the show. How about you guys introduce yourself? Thank you. Um, my name is Jason Rosa, president of Studio Dice LLC and executive producer of the center. My name is John Anderson, chief technology officer, audio engineer, and composer for Studio Dice LLC and the center. Hi, my name is Sungju Gen. I'm a visual artist at Studio Dice Okay, and and anyone else, or is that? Hey, Will, are you there? Oh, I, oh, I'm I'm Will. I am uh, the creative director with Studio Daisho and uh, on the center. Okay. Uh, and uh, I okay. am Paul. Uh, I am the game developer on the center. Okay. And for the audience out there while they're listening to this, what's the website they can check out to find out more information about the project um, and the game and the you studio? You can go to uh, thecentergame.com which okay. features our dev blog as well as our um, demo for both Mac and Windows. Okay. So it's thecentergame.com. That's correct. Okay. And, okay, well, let's, uh, so what, what inspired you guys? What's this game about? Like, for the audience out there, what's the game about? Okay, well, um, you play as uh, two alien characters known as Anu and Hex, and they're their last martyrs sent from an ancient uh, alien race. Their destination is a planet we're calling Garrick, uh, at the center of the universe. Um, they both have a single-minded devotion to their mission, which is pretty much... Um, going to the center, uh, journeying there and destroying it to start a, a heat death of the universe. And um, our overall game kind of follows that journey and then also follows the journey of the core foundation of each character. And and what genre would you say the game is in then? Uh, sci-fi. Okay. Um, sci-fi RTS, oh. sci-fi RPG? What, like? um, all right, yeah, so, uh, sci-fi action adventure, uh, probably isometric. Yeah, oh, RPG. Okay. Well, you do play a role-playing character. Right, so. yeah. yeah. And what, what inspired you guys to, to do this game? Well, um, my company is Studio Dice Show. We're a music composition and sound design company, so we're on the other tier. Uh, we're usually hired to work on video games for music and sound. Uh, okay. We had some ideas of doing something where we're considering, uh, or what we're calling is an, an interactive audio portfolio where we can make our music and sounds a little bit more interactive for our listeners. And uh, I've have a, had a lot of short stories and being a visual person, uh, it's kind of where I inspire for a lot of my music. Uh, it just made sense to go on this kind of you know journey to take it to possibly making a video game. It seemed like the right fit for us. And what, what platforms is this game going to be on? Um, we're currently shooting for a uh, Mac yeah. and Windows build. Um, with okay. potential console in the future, yeah, we would love that. What what tool or are you using a, a third party tool to develop this game or? Uh, yeah, yes, we're, we're using uh, primarily the, the Unreal Engine. Oh, Unreal Engine! Wow. Um, well, Early, let's... four point eight. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, what what inspires you to use Unreal over Unity? Um, well, honestly, I would say the uh, the realistic aspects of it, the realistic uh, physics. Uh, before, we were actually working on the game uh, with Unity, and um, Unity just, it's a great platform for us. It's just, Unreal has a little bit more when it comes to what we wanted to do with the AI, the physics to the upgrade. Well, I, th I think uh, one of the major drives as well is that they had had a previous project. Um, yeah. And it wasn't. It didn't turn out quite the way they, they'd wanted it to, um, 
and so when they started uh, coming together with a new team, um, it seemed like both um, I, the, the main programmer at the time, and uh, several of the artists were much more experienced with Unreal than, than Unity. Okay. Um, and so it, 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 it was a lot easier to go and work with the team that we had in Unreal as well. Yeah, that's uh, it's interesting because because the business model, <laughs> the, the licensing model is very different. Oh, yeah. I think I think they take a royalty versus um, a, like a like a monthly or flat fee for Unity. Correct. That was actually when we switched too. When Epic, you know, released that they did that new licensing feature, it really helped us out because we were actually looking at other engines. It was three um, days before. It was three. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah, three days before we decided to go ahead and make the jump over, and that's actually kind of where we um, got Paul. Our, our new game developer and then also uh, we were looking at other members uh, Anthony uh, Davis for visual effects and he had a lot of unreal visual effects experience and, okay. and he had, he's a technical artist so he had a lot of capabilities with unreal um, I, what, what, what are your thoughts of unreal versus unity I mean I know you, t- you mentioned some technical improvements how's the community uh, from my perspective as a programmer, the Android community is just amazing okay. because almost everyone on the forums is, like, if you ask a question, it can take a while to get answered. It's not as big as Unity's. That's, I think, the major downside. Uh, the upside, though, is that the people who, I think people view Unreal, I think this is becoming less and less the case, The people view Unreal as a sort of... Um, you have to be. You have to know more about programming and know more about how to do things than you do in Unity, yeah. which isn't necessarily true, um, because Unreal's blueprints are pretty user friendly. You can go and play around with those and figure out what you're doing. But what Unreal does have that Unity doesn't have, at least one of the major things, is that um, you can go in and edit the source code and change stuff in the engine. Um, yeah. And one of the really cool things about the community is that they'll actually go make changes to the engine that every other people could use so they'll improve and optimize the rendering or whatever and then unreal will go and take those changes and actually put them into the next version of the engine yeah now the thing is though with unity there's an amazing i don't know if you've used the asset store in unity but it's it's an amazing resource to get something up and running really quickly yeah uh i would say unity's asset store is more robust than what unreal offers yeah uh, at this point but Unreal does have a comparable product. Um, okay. I haven't had a uh, huge amount of experience with either, but um, they're both functional and nice in the limited experience I have had. And, and Unreal's is growing daily. Yeah. People, oh, yeah. people, people are adding stuff daily. Yeah, I'm not, it, I'm not will, criticizing. It'll only get better. Yeah. I'm looking to understand because, you know, before Unity, there was Flash, right? <laughs> you know, there's like all these tools yeah. that come up. There's so many tools now, yeah. which is kind of cool, really. Yeah. And the thing is, though, for, you know, for an indie studio, you have to see, like, what are some of the benefits and what are some, some of the drawbacks. And, you know, Unreal, definitely there's, there's a name behind it. And, you know, I, I do see with Unity, at least, um, with my experience with Unity, is that it has an amazing asset store. Um, it really depends on the type of game you want. I, you know, I haven't really tried to push the limitations of shading and illumination and all this other stuff. And you know, for my for an audience that I like to develop for, they may not even care right. about that. And so, I mean, I guess for your audience, you're you're thinking that it has to be it has to look AAA. With um, yeah, with, with Unity Five though, when I went back and, and tried to play with the shading a bit, it can it could push some pretty solid stuff now yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, from an artist, from an art perspective, though, I, I believe that Unreal has the more robust features, and and the stuff that Unity has also, I I think Unreal does slightly better, if not way better. Yeah, and uh, you, go, you have go more of an ease of use with all the shaders. It's more user friendly. You could do a lot with it. I mean, I the times that I've tried to use Unity or that I've tried to teach myself Unity, it always has seemed a little bit more difficult yeah. than, when, than when I try to use Unreal. I, th I think working with artists in Unreal, just the workflow that they've set out for you is really nice from an artist's perspective. Every yeah. artist I've worked with in the engine has always said that. What are your thoughts, though, on as a small indie studio, do you need a dedicated artist to to deliver on the initial product that can get people engaged or not. And the reason I mentioned that is because you look at something like Goat Simulator. I don't know if you're familiar with Goat Simulator, but yeah. they said oh, they, yeah. bought, they bought the goat pre-made, like from some <laughs> from some website. I mean, I, th I guess that depends <laughs> on your game. Honestly. Yeah. Uh, that, that's I, I, I totally think you could make games with totally pre-made assets. I think it's been proven. Yeah. Goat Simulator is a good example of that it can be done. But I think a game can severely leverage an advantage from having an artist on, on the team from the beginning. It, it does limit your vision if you have only pre-made objects. The, the, yeah. the, the possibilities with making your own assets are limitless. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I understand that. It's just that my concern is that with um, with some of the, you know, because part of it seems like to get, a, to get a small game up and running, you need a community of yeah. fans. Mm -hmm. And those fans... Like that's more important necessarily. Maybe maybe in addition to the gameplay, it seems like everything else is secondary. And you know what I'd like is pushback from you and some of the other people on how how you feel that audio. Because you know we we talked about we had introductions at the beginning, and art and audio were something that were important. Uh, I mean you have those roles on your team right now, right? And I wanted pushback on how important audio and art is. For, for a game that doesn't have art and audio in the gameplay. Now, you talked about um, having more interactive audio, right? And, uh, and maybe that could be, relate to the gameplay itself. And, and maybe, you know, and in that sense, audio could be very critical. Like you have, you have games like, I think it's like Tap the White Tiles or Don't Tap the White Tiles or something else like that. And audio is critical there, but that's, that's part of the gameplay. Um, what are your thoughts on art and audio that are more enhancers and kind of like pizzazz to, towards towards the main game? Now you just it's you just saying in general, or are you talking yeah. about yeah? Well, even even about your game, your game specifically. Well, that we wanted to approach our game from. You know, given it's a sci-fi game, we, and we yeah. wanted to be immersive. We wanted to have like a minimalist approach for, I mean, the overall world exploration. So we're looking at more of the sound effects of the environment, the creatures. Um, we're trying to cue the player uh, and train the player's ear to when you hear this sound that you know what's coming and these kind of things. And um, we're relying a lot on feedback. But when we were going into our boss battles, that's where we really wanted to excel on our on our music. Uh, and synchronizing the music cues with the actual um, gameplay. Um, the overall idea and what Paul has been working on is kind of how he got on, on board the team was we were trying to find a way to adjust things in Unreal where you could 
pretty much if you understand music, you understand time signatures and, and you know, you're four four, you're a hundred BPM, you could technically play within the metronome instead of having things that are just happening. Um, you know, I, I can't remember the game. I think it's the Necro Dancer. Yeah, some uh, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I I, I I want think you've uh, crypt of the decorative dancer. Yes, yeah. yes. Where basically it would have the tempo and then uh, everything would advance forward, um, kind of on these tiles and stuff. And we wanted to do Very something scripted. a little right. We wanted to do something a little more interactive, um, where you could actually, you know, what would happen if I just hit an action on two and four? And so that's kind of what our next update is. Actually, we're working on the boss sequence right now, we've, and Paul's already had the core functionality of that uh, kind of early, but we're still working out a lot of the kinks. And we're hoping by the the 4th of uh, this December, our next update will basically be showcasing what we have in store for implementing our, our music in uh, boss battles. And just to go into that a little bit further, what Jason was saying, um, this is not a scripted event. This isn't scripted in the way that, you know, say the entire arrangement or stems as you were, the yeah. violins or the percussion. It's not layered on a scripted event. This is happening all in real time on basically okay. the player's feedback. Okay. And and you were talking about beats two and four. How does that can can you go into more detail on how that actually works with the boss battles and, and stuff like that? Well we look at it as as okay, like when when I say two and four, I'm I'm coming from it. I'm a drummer, so I'm yeah. thinking, usually the snare drums on two and four sometimes. Uh, it's common. So I was thinking if you were just having actions on one of every measure, um, then maybe it you would always dodge, or you would always be able to make a hit. Um, or if you hit it on two and four, say like you know you you have an action two and four that doesn't really make a connection, but it does something else. Um, so that that's kind of what we were thinking. So, so, so essentially, what they, in a general sense, what they want to happen is that um, what you can hear the music when things are going to happen. So you'll hear the pattern a couple of times, right? Yeah. And so you'll hear like, okay, the snare means this, the the, the bass drum means this, the lead means this is going to happen in the game, yeah. and then that would cause basically be, be linked to things in the game happening. Okay. And. Um, all based on the player's feedback. Yeah, and and so, okay. So let's let's move on to the the initial development of the project. Um, so you know you, you you had this idea, and what what was the next step after that? I mean, I mean, yeah. I know I know you have experience with Unreal and stuff like that. So then, what what happened then? Because it's because. We're doing a, a conference call over Skype, so are you using Skype to meet up every day and develop stuff, or what? what's the... We have um, a source control. We're using Perforce. Uh, we have Google Drive to keep all of our, I guess, all of our assets. files and assets together if, in case anyone on the team comes in, <clears throat> you'll be able to find it. Um, Skype is what we usually have as our meeting point uh, from, you know, just having... We have meetings every Tuesday and Friday, Friday at 5.30... Uh, um, and these things in combination are pretty much what we use to get this game developed. It's mostly working on Perforce. Um, Paul, for instance, will check something out, work on something with Perforce, put the book back, someone else would come in, check out the book, and pick up from there, and then we would have constant updates like that. Very, very powerful tool. Oh, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and, and how long did it take to get the alpha version out? 
Um, I would say five months was uh, the the pure development of just we switched over from Uni to Unreal, or two D into three D. Right. Okay. So that, that was basically the whole period that I was involved. It was just very very rapid development. Yeah, it was very rapid. Okay, so basically, can you talk about some of the design challenges you had as you were developing from nothing to alpha? Because you, you talked about 2D and 3D and some, and some other changes. Do you want to take this? Yeah, I'll take this. Um, well, yes, from what we're talking about before, we had a completely 2D sprite-based game. So we yeah. had to completely redesign every character every art asset, every environment up to what it is now. So we had to bring new people on the team like Will, which is our creative director now, mm-hmm. and flush out the characters. So Will was able to create fantastic, phenomenal characters for Anu and Hex. They're completely redesigned from 2D into 3D. And um, Will, you want to kind of talk about a little bit of how you went about approaching um, Anu and Hex? Sure. Uh, well, from the beginning, uh, Anu and Hex looked wildly different from what they are now they, they, they had a different direction the, the mechanics worked a little different so the, the mechanics dictated mostly what the their design looks like now uh, for one thing we, we decided to go with uh, to, to throw in some some new moves that a new could do some special uh, moves and like the dodge like the roll and uh, that dictated that he should be able to somehow collapse into a ball or form form the shape of, 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 of a, a sphere or a ball that would allow him to roll. So that that kind of uh, led me to to work with a more skeletonized kind of mechanical look. Um, and then uh, Hex, his design, he, he, he kind of uh, came out of just long, long periods of just thinking about what would be cool and different. And uh, the idea... Of, of Hex was that he could create different shapes by putting together uh, triangular assets that, that would float in midair around him and uh, these would uh, allow him to, to make different uh, weapons and special abilities that, that Anu can then use him for and uh, his shape basically was dictated by that idea. And that was the first thing we kind of got Will on. When he first came on, he was tasked with re- the redesign for Anu and Hex from 2D into the 3D world. And at the same time, we also had Lou Fraga, um, our environment artist, concept from the 2D environment that he already had created and translating that to a 3D space. And then Will kind of took over the map at that point once there's a base model and then refined it even more. Um, and then a- alongside creating the smaller assets, the rock assets, the crystal assets that are in the environment. So when you talk about art, Every aspect of the game was taken from an art aspect. We, we never used pre-made assets. All assets were created, created and designed from the ground up with all that in mind, with the story uh, thought out and with that in mind. So yeah, Everything pretty much had a, had a purpose from start yeah. to finish. Yeah. Switching from 2D to 3D is, is, a, is a big choice. I mean, can you talk about what, um, what really inspired that and you know, some of the challenges related to that and, you know, just yeah, because because you can kind of simulate 3D with you know with an isometric view in 2D. Did you did you look into that? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. That and, was what our game was originally. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd love to hear why why you switched it to like oh. real 3D. Yeah, that's the the biggest thing was this game was always going to be 3D. Uh, that, that was that was our uh, our big our push before we were looking at the Cry Engine, 
and there was a lot of um, things that were roadblocks uh, for us where, you know, we were talking about the AI and there's a lot of people that um, said that they really understood CryEngine very well and we felt that there was some limits on there. Um, it's a beautiful engine and we really wanted the game to be immersive. We don't have any heads up display. So it was really challenging on that aspect that, you know, and then we said, you know what, let's just calm it down and let's think about the basics of our game. Um, what type of uh, weapon upgrades we had. Before it was very much, it was very similar to um, to Mega Man. So that's kind of how we approached our our, our weapon, which is initially Hex. Uh, they have like a, Anu and Hex have like a symbiotic relationship. And Hex is more of like your, your Sariot arm or your weapon. And so before doing it in 2D, um, we just felt still that it wasn't it wasn't right. I mean, there was yeah. things that we wanted to um, pursue rather than just have it be, you get a new blaster and it could do this. Um, and we're like, you know what, let's just really take the time to find uh, a team that could really deliver um, and bring this game back to 3D. And that's kind of where we went to, we bounced around with Unity and then Unreal again. Yeah. Um, once we went to Unreal, the major changes, as, as John and Will um, kept reiterating, was that we really, we didn't, re I, I don't look at it as a complete redesign, more so than I look at it as like an upgrade. Um, we, Facelift, right? Yeah, it's pretty much, yeah. I mean, it's it's approving upon the ideas that are already there. Um, for instance, we had Cryosphere. Um, before, the Cryosphere ability was, uh, you know, going from 2D, it was, a blaster that shot out these orbs, and these orbs would kind of hit you, or hit the enemy, and they would slow them down, then pinball to the next enemy and slow them down, you know, from the most time to the least. And we looked at, you know, okay, that's cool, but then when we went to 3D to approve upon it, now the blaster is not actually a blaster, it's hex, using the assets that you have to, you have to find, which warrants the grinding in our game, uh, similar to most dungeon crawling games. So you build these assets, get this shape and blueprint, and then when you shoot Hex, um, he still is able to do the pinball with the Cryosphere, but now he can actually interact with other collision points, like, you know, say, the wall or other enemies. Um, so, yeah, I mean, from that aspect, there was a lot of things. Uh, everything was improved upon because we were in 3D now. What about the performance, though? Um, did that cause an issue because now you are in 3D? Well, it did. Yeah. It did, and it didn't. It kind of put us. Uh, it kind of gave us a limitation to where we could do and what we couldn't do. Mm -hmm. And also at the same time, it it made us push us in the way we want to go, which was having more art-based stuff instead of when you say realistic. We want. We always want to go artistic uh, with the with the um, with all the assets and the characters. But it kind of gave us that ability, and at the same time, uh, the limitations of what the polygon count could be try count could be so we, i mean given the viewpoint we could kind of get away with some of that you know because yeah. you are for you're further away from the character um so we kind of just kept our our main characters pretty high in polygon and everybody else a little down and we did test early too um to see high res and low res yep. and um will for instance when he was uh whenever he would create a 3d model he would always have a high res version and a low res version which we would consider in-game and we would always make comparison. And the funniest thing is most people pick the low-res version as the higher-res. And then we would take the high-res version that Will already did, and it's used in matinee sequences. So it's not like it's crap completely. You're using yeah. the high-res for the matinee sequences. Yeah. You know, and, and that's what that's what blows my mind as a, 
you know, as as looking at the games industry, is that when you look at players, they may not even notice or care. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, like yeah. for them, they they view Clash of Clans as 3D. Even I know it kind of looks 3D. It's isometric, but you know they're not using. They may have made their models in 3D and then taken screenshots or whatever it is. But ultimately, it's 2D. It's isometric, like a 2D. Yeah, sprite view and then you know and yeah. you see the success of that and then you see some games that are 3d that also work like minecraft um and and then you see some 2d games that also work so it is a crazy decision in my opinion like to just to find the right to, to even do you think that even matters to players that's really the question there are definitely some things you can do in 3d it's just that like like we were discussing, I'm concerned about the performance. And that uh, performance, if it heats up their laptop or their de- mobile device, that's it. Like, that's going to turn them off, at least for the casual gamer. Now, your audience might be different. They may be used to it anyways. I think it all depends on execution of yeah. of, of the art and, and the gameplay itself. Because I, I think as long as everything is, is done well and it, it is an enjoyable experience... And that performance is, is kept down to a reasonable level for whatever your audience may be. Um, it doesn't like it, it does matter, and it doesn't matter. It depends yeah. on who on what your game is and who you're yeah. targeting to. Yeah, if and, you and do it certain, properly, there's certain yeah. guidelines too. There, there's guidelines that you follow that that in the end will allow you to to put out performance that is in balance with beautiful, you know, visuals. Yeah. So there's no uh, lag or delay or, or all this other stuff that can create an issue. Exactly. As long as you, you, you follow uh, you know, texture sizes, you keep texture yeah. sizes low, you keep poly counts to a minimum within reason because you still yeah. want to have beautiful silhouettes and, and beautiful details yeah. and stuff like that. But even and, even the download size can you know can, can <clears throat> cause issues. And even that can be a big turnoff, yeah. That, that is true, but but a lot of the even the big AAA games that are coming out these days are are going to be huge. You're going to be in the in the multiple gigs. True. So I mean, but they have an established brand, and that is true. But you know, you're right. Look, I'm not I'm not here to attack. I want to actually find a framework where <laughs> listeners can actually you know we can say like, look, because because that's what I see in the industry. The question is, is is it all going going to go through it? You know, to 3D. Like, yeah. Is that going to be the big thing, or is it going to be 2D, or is it you know the isometric view? Is the isometric like, view the the actual ideal situation, or is it just because back in the day stuff like Zoo Tycoon and Roller Coaster Tycoon used that angle, and and that worked when you didn't have necessarily 3D, like pure 3D, and is is was that just a proxy or a substitute until we could get pure 3D? It, you know, I think it, I think it was at the time, but yeah. now I think I think it. it, it people realized it works really well for certain types of games yeah. and so we're, we're just like hey every RT, rts should be isometric yeah <laughs> or i think it's most I think it's, I, it's I, rts and that's it, really it's just, it's just another medium another way to, to tell the story yeah you know it, well look honestly certain angles resonate with people way more the same game true. with a different isometric angle or, or a different angle or different perspective can completely change how people respond right. to it I mean, you go look at first person versus uh, yeah. so something far out like the, the view in this game. I mean, it's it's a huge difference because you feel like, I mean, you are yeah. the person or you are looking at the person. Yeah. So the indie game, and I mean, in particular, I mean, now that we're we're the indie game seems to be picking up, and a lot of indie dev- developers are trying new things artistically. 
I think now we can play around with what works for that game. Like, I mean, yeah. you take Limbo, for instance, being a side-scroller, I think that really made that game, and that was the best choice for it. I can't visualize that game in an isometric. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it's really personal preference. I, I think before, it's kind of like understanding music, where you looked at 16 or 8-bit music, for instance. Yeah. Uh, they, they uh, you know, you would take these orchestras and you would really simplify them, and you're, you would only have, like, maybe four or five different instruments playing. It's because of the RAM and all that stuff, but now it's a stylized thing, yeah. you know? So, yeah. I really think it it nowadays it depends on the project, but it's it that's a that's happening everywhere for every medium. It's style over substance, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, and then and the tools now kind of give us the, you know the ability to push these capabilities of what yeah. you're seeing. And you know most computers that come out now are at least four gigs of RAM. Um, yeah, you know e- even yeah, so even the lower end. Yeah, exactly. Know? Yeah, I'm not arguing. All I'm saying is that. I would love to have a formula where we're like, okay, well, if we do it in isometric view, we know that it's going to, people are going to respond, you know, 50 times better or whatever else. And, you know, because, because I feel like some of these games, you're like, you, you say that side scroller work, but it's partially because the game developer may, may not have been able to do isometric. True. And, but, and yeah. so, so then you have this situation where people are like, well, it worked because of that. No, it worked because there was no indie game maybe related to that at that time. And there was an opening in the market and right. the fact that they did it in a timely manner at the time when there was an opening, whether they did it isometric or side scroll or even 3D, it wouldn't have mattered. Well, and that's, I think, get right. back from your game testing feedback, too. You know, I mean, yeah. actually, that, that could answer that question right there. If you give it to 50 people and they say that it's perfect and maybe they went about it that way, I mean, not, I'm not really sure. Yeah. That's a hard thing to narrow down, you know? So. Yeah. When, when you're looking at it in terms of success, I think it is more about. Uh, filling a hole in the market when you look at indie stuff. Right. I mean, finding an audience of people that haven't been served very well, yeah, and then catering to that audience, whatever it may be. And I, I think if you find that audience, or like you're saying, uh, you mentioned earlier, just finding that fan base, it doesn't matter the camera view. <laughs> no, it does. <laughs> like, I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but honestly, like people want. Look, even look, even with uh, Clash of Clans, I mean. Supposedly, they used a 60-degree angle versus the standard 45-degree angle. And that may have, you know, that gave it a little distinct... It wasn't completely radical, but it was a little distinct change that may have made a difference. Obviously, it had the right mechanics, too, and and, and these other things. But um, that's fine. I'm, I'm just curious, like... Just, just, just being different enough. Like yeah. Then. Well, what do, you, what do you guys prefer? Do you prefer first-person view or do you prefer isometric view or some other view? To, to be honest, I'm I'm a I'm old school. I I am all about retro games. So yeah, all the way. I I <laughs> love side scrollers and uh, platformers and stuff yeah. like that. Personally, well, that that that's one of my favorite views. I I love that old school yeah. feel to things. But uh, I I think for, from a storyteller's perspective, things like like first person or even over the shoulder third person are are, are excellent views. Okay. Our well, our perspective, though, I think, lends a lot to to the characters and the way they move together and interact with each other, though. So, well, uh, t- for me, though, I, I don't really have a preference. I think um, I, I, I've enjoyed games from all sorts of perspectives and uh, both two D and three D. Personally, yeah. and. You know, and that's the other thing is that sometimes some of these games that work that were side scroller are just because they, they hit on the nostalgia factor. 
mm-hmm. versus you know anything else. Um, but yeah, thanks thanks for your feedback on that. Um, so so you switched to three D and. You know, what are your thoughts on that at this point? I mean, do you feel that that was a really good decision? Does it really add to the game? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, we're getting the environments, for instance, so it's just it's mind blowing. Uh, we yeah. wanted the game to be very immersive, and you know, given that we don't want any heads up displays, we just want to teach the players intuition through sound and visuals. Um, I think now being in the 3D realm, we can really um, we can really do this justice and I, I think from seeing the maps and what Will's creating level design wise it's just I'm really thrilled I'm very happy with the product so it was a good move and we wanted to showcase everyone's abilities as well yeah you know and, and like what Jason said keeping the immersion yeah keep the immersion factor and also because we have no heads up displays so we had a lot of art studies um, with what type of style we wanted we're right I mean it's it's I think the one that we kept coming back to and where we fit is sort of like transistor in a way where it's realistic, um, yet there are some, I guess, cartoony aspects to it. Um, but we were trying to stay within that realm, and we really wanted, you know, to find the right niche for it. Um, to what to to us looks like the center. So um, we couldn't do that with the. Uh, I mean, we could with the two D, but it would be a little bit more specific on the art style, I think. And that was kind of the issue we were having: um, the different artists collaborating. And trying to find the right type of, I guess, you know, language of what is okay for you know the center and environments where okay for the assets, and we're having some some issues. But doing it in three D now, uh, it's it's way easier. Um, the artists are able to collaborate better, and we were able yeah. to find a nice style, a nice niche for our game. And were there any other challenges or dramatic changes that you had to make uh, while you're developing the alpha version? Um, Team-wise, we did, yeah. We went through a lot of people that, you know, they say that we're not AAA or uh, we can't, it can't be done. It's right. Like, you know, on the programming side of things, like, oh, yeah, those mechanics are really cool. They're really original. You can't do that or I can't program that or you're not AAA or we should downgrade it. Or, we should do this and try to keep trying to manipulate the story in a way to down. <laughs> down. And what you're saying is, I mean, it's, it's interesting because uh, we've had our conversations about yeah. this when we talk about the market and yeah and how okay you know we, we would get a lot of times where no one cares about that you know if right. they're going to play this game they really want to grind on it or they just want the graphics don't matter we need to focus on this and it works for certain games and um yeah i just had a hard time to really uh you know really be sold on that because every time we would talk about the game the number the first thing we would go into conversation with was about the story and i realized um, for instance, we have um, John G, who works for ILM, um, who showed interest on the project when it was transitioning from 2D to 3D, and that was purely because of the story. Um, yeah. And you know, we have all these great artists that have yeah. approached us, and it, I realized that the story was something we couldn't compromise on. That that was a very important thing about our game and the immersion factor. Um, we really wanted the player to be thrown in the story and keep it broad enough where everyone could kind of walk away from their own interpretation of that story so it's it's like a personalized game experience um so yeah i mean i think i think that was the biggest thing was like okay well we have the story we should really focus on how do we enhance this story and the the next thing that came up was art and then we talked about music and um you know how the sounds would, would play into it and how we would only showcase our music on epic parts of the game such as the boss battle and yeah. the gameplay was was we had the idea of the gameplay, but that really came over time and catering to what we 
you know, to the art and music and sound. So um, I, it's really left up to the game. I, I see where you're coming from, and I, and, I, it's, and I said it to all the other programs and the people we were working with before. I totally see that. I, it's a hard thing to, to predict and say, yeah. oh, that's probably the best route to go. It could be the right route, but, I mean, you know, we were sticking with what we know and what we feel is, is you know, good substance for our style. And were you using, like, what forms were you using to attract other potential artists or people to join your team? Was it something where you're doing weekly updates somewhere that attracted more people, or, or how did that work? Um, well, we would we searched a lot for a lot of these artists, and I guess some of the artists, you know, were talking to others, saying, hey, you should check them out. And we would mostly, I had a kind of, um, it's like a study or a synopsis. It's like a pseudo press kit in a way. Or of what we had in mind for the game, what we were trying to accomplish. Some, so uh, Lou was one of the first people on board, and he's a 3D illustrator, so we were able to have some early concepts to kind of explain some of the ideas we had. Um, I had some storyboards that helped as well. And we would go to uh, forums, like before we were going to do Unity, so we would be on the Unity forums, uh, you know, just throw it out there, here's our idea. We went on the Steam concept. Yep. Um, and... Uh, a lot of us are full cell graduates as well. So, right, so. Um, one of our good business early on business consultants, uh, Karis Fraser, she actually knew quite a bit. She actually um, knew Will. Yeah, she knew Will. Yeah. And she knew um, Anthony, and yeah. that kind of led to knowing other people in that industry, you know, in that field, and also from full cell as well. It's usually difficult for a small team to necessarily keep making progress. Um, Oh, yeah. over, over the course of maybe balancing other obligations and stuff like that. I mean, how did you guys stay focused and, you know, and, and get the, get at least the alpha done, you know? Well, um, I mean, I look at it from, you know, as I said, Stuart Daishu is, is my business, so I kind of use the same foundation here that I did with this project. And mostly I think the number, the number one thing that I found uh, vital to that um, to, is that I want people to stand beside us, you know, not behind us kind of thing. I wanted everyone to be in a collaborative setting where um, you're trusting in your teammate uh, on, a, on a collaborative type of, you know, verse where you appreciate his work and you admire his work and as you see him put in, you're putting in. And we set these goals, short, time, short goals up to long-term goals that we were just achieving little by little, um, really just focused on... Um, keeping updates and making sure everybody was driven, but really the number one thing was they had to be here because they wanted to. Um, that was the number one thing that I kept saying. Um, we all have other obligations. I mean, we all have family, and uh, you know, uh, my uh, before my vice president uh, Albert Klein, for instance, he just had a a child and he had a lot of things come up and. We, everyone was really good with communication, but everyone wanted to be here and everyone wanted to contribute because they really liked the project and uh, they really liked working with the person next to them. And uh, that's kind of, I think, what really kept that going um, and the morale. You know, you, you see someone else put in as much hours as you are. I mean, you, you, really, you really feel like, okay, we're really accomplishing things, and they were. I mean, I can't reiterate that enough when I say that five months um, we got to this point and it's really hard because you know we the resources ran ran out and the well, um, you know, is pretty much dried up and that's kind of why we went to we're going to Kickstarter right now and really trying to push for that. Um, but honestly, that's that's just 
part of the struggle. I mean, you just gotta uh, you gotta want people that want to work on the project and, and feel enticed. To. Yeah, and you know, here at Studio Daisha, we we were working on it for well over a year. Um, so we're looking yeah. at what about a year and a half just from the two D and then now to the three D. I mean, we yeah. when we shifted, it was five months for development from three D from the beginning till now. But we've been working on it for well over a year and a half. Oh, yeah. you know, conceptualizing it. And like Jason said, he penned he penned this <laughs> a couple of years ago. So when I mean, you know, the before the five months, then was it still pretty much like a, this size team, or was it a smaller team, or what? What are your it's thoughts? A smaller team. Oh yeah, okay. uh, because it was two D. We we only had one animator or sprite animator. Um, she also did digital effects, and then we had Lou who was doing the level designs, uh, and then we had one uh, character one artist. character artist who was pretty much doing all the characters at the time. Um, like and, five or six. Yeah, it was just five or six small person team. Yeah. Uh, it, it really, it just pretty much doubled the 15, I mean, in yeah. a way. So. We went up and then down, so. Yeah, um, it, it was, yeah. right now, we're, I think we're at a comfortable limit of how many people we need. I mean, because you kind of, it's like an equilibrium. You, you have enough people to do the, the task, but at the same time, yeah. you want to have them overlapping fields. Yeah. So, that yeah. way, when somebody kind of, you know, can't do something or gets to a roadblock, there's another person that knows how to solve that problem, or at least wants to be here enough to push and push past that and find the solution for that answer. And that's, I feel like we've gotten that. That was, I mean, that was a part of the yeah. interview process as well. Is that yeah. you know, if if you do not know how to do that, I mean, at least you have the means to figure it out or or, or some or resource to find um, the answer you're looking for. And then we would do our job on the management side to make sure that we would try to find help. Um, for instance, we just uh, hired Devlin, um, Devlin Willis, who's out in Alabama. And, third programmer. Yeah, he's our third programmer, just to give another hand to the programming side of things and he's, to be a QA. He's taking care uh, of the bugs for the demo right now. And and how did you find another programmer? Um, and how do you balance adding more people with you know the the equity and all this other stuff? Um, I mean, that's pretty much we we use the Unreal form, which is what Paul was going into. The Unreal form is awesome. Yeah. We have other, I mean, and we would also, you know, referrals. If anyone, I, usually this team has been really good yeah. with referrals. That's actually how we found Paul. It was people a referral know people. from Anthony. Yeah. So, um, the community yeah, and, itself is just really nice. Yeah, and, and we would take from, we have a, a budget breakdown, and we would mostly take from business expenses, and that's kind of where we were coming from. Um, okay. It hurts us, but we really wanted the project to, to be to be created, you know, we really want this thing to come out. So we would shift things here and there with when it comes to how much we can take from music, do this in studio instead of out. Let's discuss some of the um, gameplay mechanics. You kind of referred to that earlier on. Um, what what are some of the unique mechanics that you guys have introduced into the game? You want to take this one, Paul, or? Do you want to take it? Do you want to touch upon that, Paul? Well, it's largely your game, but uh, if you'd like me to, I can try to talk about it. So uh, I think the most unique thing about what they're trying to do is uh, probably trying to integrate sound as much as possible um, and make that a part of the gameplay experience. So you uh as on you are just a little dude who walks around and explores this world right and trying to um get and accomplish goals um 
But the thing that make, that they're trying to do and, and make it interesting is by having everything in the world interact and um, be synced to to music. So you are killing things and. Let me interject real quick, Paul. Um, I knew you play I knew in Hex, and as Jason was saying, they're the, they were sent to destroy the universe by the way of heat death. So, in in terms of gameplay mechanics, um, I knew and Hex get crash land in the demo. They crash land on a planet, so I knew loses one of his arms, and which was his arm that he was going to do most of his engineering functionality with. So, the they they share a symbiosis relationship. So Hex is the ship's artificial intelligence system. And um, with the control of Anu, you're able to control Hex. And whatever blueprint he has, you're able to do that effect. So the first one that you get is Cryosphere, the ability to slow or delay objects over a short duration. And this is also chained in real time. So it hits the first enemy and ricochets to the next enemy, and then it goes out in a uh, proximity. Yeah, so, I mean, that's pretty much our overall idea is that you know you have a symbiotic relationship between these two characters kind of like banjo kazooie so hex is an upgradable tool and your surrogate arm um you know replacing detaching the idea of the blaster in a way like the Mega Man arm and okay. as you get these blueprints you upgrade hex and then you get an amount of you have to hit a certain amount of uh, assets for that blueprint um once you get those assets it creates a shape and then you have a certain ability associated with that shape um, the music aspect is just something that's just being sh highlighted more so in our in our boss battles. Yeah. Okay. And do you have plans for any other additional gameplay um, in, or, or you know changes in mechanics for the beta version and final release? Yes, Hex is going to get, I believe, four different um, blueprints. So since the demo. Uh, Hex lose when you get the new blueprint. Hex loses the ability to do the first blueprint. So you start with Cryosphere, and then the next one say it's going to be Electrolyst, which is uh, ability to shock um, any type of environmental puzzles or enemies. So you will lose that first ability and then gain the second ability. So we kind of entice the player to always learn and adapt and grow as the story grows. When do you guys expect the the beta version to be out? What's the what's the timeline and development path for the remaining items, or you know, to, to get it to final release? Well, it kind of depends on our Kickstarter as well. Um, our, our Kickstarter, if we reach our minimum funding goal, we'd be able to do that onto the next year. If not, we're going to have to really sit down and plan on how we're going to approach that. Uh, for right now, we're this game's a three act game, or you know, three part uh, game, so we're only doing act one. Um, for this Kickstarter. So for right now, we're just taking it as it comes, but we're hoping to finish up the demo to completion so we can have a full proof of concept of how our gameplay works and you know really talk about our art and style there and music and be able to showcase this and then we can take it on from there. Your Kickstarter, how much are you guys asking to raise at this point? Uh, our minimum funding goal, $20,000. And do you usually have like thirty days then to get it funded, or what's the what's the timeline? Um, you can set the timeline when you're on Kickstarter. Um, we set it for thirty five days. Okay. And and how long has it been since you started the the Kickstarter? 
week or yeah, so. Yeah, a little over a week right now. I think we're on 27, 26 days long. Yeah. Okay. And how's how's the progress? Man, it's 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 hard. I mean, we're getting a lot of traffic through our actual main website, which is insane. And through um, Twitter. And through Twitter and Facebook, but it's I think with the releases of Fallout 4 and the Star Wars trailer, yeah, yeah second two right <laughs> really hard because everybody's doing that. Yeah. Uh, I just read a funny article of, about yeah. uh, about Fallout 4. Um, about that, that everything is kind of dipping because of that. <laughs> um, and I think that's a good stopping point for the first part of the interview. Is that I think the next next part we can discuss the business aspects, specifically the marketing, the cool. funding, and you know, and figuring out ways to actually get this to become you know, an, a hallmark indie game. And, and I was going to ask about Steam and, and just other distribution mechanisms that you could potentially use to yeah. promote your game. Um, so I think with that said, uh, if you could once again mention the website where uh, the audience members could check out your game, it would be appreciated. Yes, yeah, so you can go to uh, www.thecentergame.com. And that's where the demo is, and also our de uh, development blog as well. We're on Twitter and Facebook and IndieDB under the Center Game. Great. Um, thanks again for your time and for the audience out there. The next, uh, the next part of the interview will cover the business aspects and how an indie studio will actually find a way to get to market successfully. Cool. Thanks again. Take care. Bye. Bye.